Hi, welcome to the Metal Detecting Show, episode number 30. My name is Kieran, and I have been metal detecting for nearly 30 years. This week I talk to you about the dating game. No, this is not a chat on how to pick up a partner while metal detecting, but how the scientific community would go about dating a find. So let's get on with the show. Hey, before we start, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and I hope you enjoyed the show this week. If you want to give me feedback or interact with the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at Detecting The or Instagram at The Metal Detecting Podcast or if you want to pop me an email to Kieran at TheMetalDetectingShow.com. And now, if you'd like to leave me a voicemail, please do so on SpeakPipe.com forward slash The Metal Detecting Show. The link will be in the show notes. And lastly, if you like this content, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Okay, firstly, on to my adventures in metal detecting. Well, this week I was in catch-up mode and got out twice. Once to my what I would call a relic-type beach where everything is older than 20 years and is battered from the beach. But this beach is where I tend to find my oldest and most interesting finds. And this time was no different with several pre-euro coins, relics including old pigeon rings and pins even some of the rubbish was interesting with old style pull tabs and labels popping out. This hunt if you are following me on Instagram is the hunt that I had spent two hours chatting to the camera showing off my finds to the camera only to realize that the camera was off. I had forgotten to turn on the camera in my excitement to get out and believe me that was painful. The next day I hit a popular beach looking for a more modern find, but unfortunately I was repeatedly interrupted by an old man who was looking for fairy rings, so I lost a good 30 minutes there chit-chatting, but further interruptions came including the local police to check on a car that had nothing to do with me, so I think I was destined to be limited, but finds were what you would expect, some modern coins, ties and fresh air. It was then I vowed to commit to getting back in the fields as soon as possible and took the long way home, perving on a few fields along the way. Let me know if you do that, go out of your way, just to look longingly at a field in the hope the farmer will come over to you and say to you, All she needs is a good detecting. Do you know anybody that could sort her out? Enough of that. Also this week I got around to something that I was thinking about for a few weeks and that was an experiment in sublimation of corrosion from the surface of a coin. So to give you an example you might be familiar with, did you ever see those videos of the guys using high power lasers to remove surface rust from steel panels? Well this works by a process called sublimation, where the rust is heated up so fast that it goes from solid to gaseous form, bypassing liquid, leaving a pristine surface on the steel. Seeing as I have a laser lying about my shed, I thought it would be a cool experiment to see if I could sublimate some of the patina from an old 2P. Now when I posted this on Instagram I got a few DMs of people asking why did I ruin the coin and just to put it on the record it was a 2p from 1975. Even though it looked old it was super common and damaged on the beach beyond any value. Anyways to continue, in theory this shouldn't work as the temperatures required for sublimation to occur are way beyond the capability of my little laser. So after 5 passes the laser did do something, it looks like it altered the patina to be more of a char and over the last few days it has been flaking off to leave a clear surface. So watch out for my Instagram updates in a few days but maybe the next experiment will be 10 passes 
but I think I might be onto something and I may need a more powerful laser as I suspected in the first place. Or maybe I'll just stick to the angle grinder. So this week I want to talk to you about how the scientific community goes about dating finds and hopefully I can relate this to metal detecting but remember I'm not a scientist but a general Joe whose Google foo is above average. So here goes. Most dating techniques fall into two molds, one being absolute dating and the other being relative dating. No, not that type of relative dating. Relax there, deliverance. Starting with absolute dating. This is a dating methodology that is chemical in nature and is quite expensive and beyond the means of most metal detectorists. The techniques include, but not limited to, radiocarbon dating, which I'll chat about later during the tech timeout, and thermoluminescence dating, which is normally reserved for ceramics and sediments that looks at the crystalline minerals that have formed due to the minerals being heated. Absolute dating is considered scientifically accurate, but we are going to focus on relative dating, which is considered less trustworthy than absolute dating. Stratigraphy is the primary method of relative dating, and that is the study of the formation of strata in the soil due to stratification, which essentially means that over time, soil will form layers with the topmost layer, the humus layer, being the newest layer, normally forming within 12 months. This layer is made up of leaf litter and decomposed organic matter. The next layer below that would be the topsoil layer, which is made up of humus and minerals in various degrees. But did you know it takes approximately 100 years for an inch of topsoil to form? It is in these two layers that we as metal detectorists normally operate. However, there are other layers including the alluvian layer, which is just below the topsoil, followed by subsoil, and finally bedrock. And if an object is found in any of these layers, they can be assigned a relative date. For example, if an object is dropped in the last year, it is safe to assume it will be found in the humus layer, and you can assume any find in that layer has arrived there in the last 12 months. Just to be clear, it doesn't actually age the object. The object's age is determined by its manufacturing date. It just tells you when it was dropped. Now, as any will tell you, we normally operate in the topsoil layer and the humus layer. But did you know that when a person drops something onto the ground, it actually doesn't sink into the ground. But if left alone, the ground grows over it. So, this doesn't really help us. All we know that if we find something in the humus layer, it's dropped within the year. And if it's deeper, it will have been dropped from any period between 1 to 1,000 years ago. Before you all break your necks, I'm going to say yes, of course, ploughing and flooding will change the rate of descent into the soil. In fact, ploughing will serve to keep an object in the topsoil and possibly bring up an object due to granulation, which is the reason your big cornflakes sit at the top of the box while the smaller ones fall to the bottom. But that's for another episode of the podcast. So how does this help you in dating a find? Well, remember, it can only give you a relative idea to when the find was dropped. What you must do is create a cohort of finds, including rubbish, from the same layer and the same site. So if you find 10 finds on the surface, you group them in your less than one year pile. Group your one inch down finds together and on and on until you get to the point where you don't care about the relative date. So maybe 10 inches. Then reviewing each pile, you try to deduce the date of at least one find. You might find an item specific to a period of time, like a bit of broken pottery or clay pipe, allowing you to age that particular strata or layer within the soil. For example, if you found some Roman pottery, possibly fine red pottery with a glossy red slip that potentially can be dated before 410 AD, it is relatively accurate to assume that all finds from that layer 
could have potentially come from this era. Now, this is what archaeologists call context of finds to each other, but as you can see, it's not very accurate and next to useless for a metal detectorist. Now, add a plow to this scenario. This makes the possibility of building a picture of the find context to the relative date an almost impossibility. So why am I talking about this? Well, next time you're in an argument about the context of finds being ruined by metal detectors, you can say, well, I found this six inches down in topsoil that has been ploughed for the last 50 years, and thus the relative date of the strata is not a factor on this site. Up next is this week's Tech Timeout, where I talk about an absolute dating method we've all heard of, one that fundamentally changed the dating of finds, and that is radiocarbon dating. Time for this week's Tech Time Out! This week I want to give you a high level view of radiocarbon dating, sometimes referred to as just carbon dating, and I want to talk about how it works. Carbon dating was developed in the 1940s at the University of Chicago by Willard Libby, who received the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1960 for his work on the subject. So how does it work? Well, all carbon-based life forms, including us, eat plants that have in them carbon-14, which is the radioactive isotope of carbon, and is created in the atmosphere when cosmic rays collide with the neutrons of N14, altering it to become carbon-14. While alive, we and other carbon-based animals constantly exchange this carbon-14 in our bodies, so that it is constantly replenished. However, when a life form dies, this exchange stops, and the C14 that is in the body is never exchanged out again. Now, because C14 is radioactive, it suffers from radioactive decay, and carbon-14's radioactive half-life is about 5,730 years, give or take 30 years. Now, since the 1960s, scientists are measuring the carbon-14 in plants and in atmospheric data from many samples and have been able to build up a calibration curve of the amount of carbon-14 a body should have, depending on when it died. The further back you go, the less carbon-14 is in the sample. So when we die, we have a finite amount of C14 in our bodies, and this amount halves based on its half-life of 5,730 years. So theoretically, if I died 5,730 years ago, I would have half the amount of carbon-14 present in my body compared to the day I died. So by measuring the amount of carbon-14 in a sample and comparing it to the calibration curve, we are able to determine the absolute date of the sample to within 30 years or so but only accurate to approximately 50,000 years ago. Now, I don't expect this to be of use to any metal detectorist, but I do hope it's interesting. And that's it for this week's Tech Time Out. And that's it for this week. I hope you liked this episode of the Metal Detecting Show podcast. Check out our website, www.metaldetectingshow.com for this episode's show notes. Check out our Patreon page if you want to help the podcast stay alive or just want to buy me a coffee. Just search for The Metal Detecting Show. The link is in the show notes. If you would like to leave me a voicemail, please do so on speakpipe.com forward slash The Metal Detecting Show. The link will be in the show notes. If you feel like taking your appreciation to the next level, feel free to leave me a positive review on any podcast directory of your choice. If you like this content and would like more, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. This is how we measure the success of the podcast. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we will chat to you all again next week. Get out there, eyes down and happy hunting. <laughs>